You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Super Bowl edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, your host, and I am joined by Mr. Terry Pluto, as I am every week. It's Super Bowl week, Terry. You got big plans? No. <laughs> Me neither. My wife usually no. makes a great pot of chili, and we uh, we hang out and eat that. So You know, it's just like people asking, you going to the Super Bowl? My answer is no. When the Browns go, I go. That's kind of <laughs> That's my right. view of it. And, and here's why. Um I mean, the Super Bowl is kind of fun to talk about in general or whatever, but I don't bring anything that's extraordinary or exceptional to writing about uh, Kansas City and, you know, San Francisco, who's ever in there. Um, one of the things that I think I do bring, like when the Browns are playing the guard, in other words, a local team, I could bring the feelings of the fans into it and, and tap into that emotion. Um Whereas there's 12,000 stories written by people from a distance about the Super Bowl. And, um, yeah, I don't mind talking about it or anything like that. But it's never been anything that's interested me just to go to say I went to be there with 3,000 reporters and 2,900, 999 of them generally having knowing not much more than anybody else either. Yeah, well, speaking of the Super Bowl, I, I do want to mention Mary Kay Cabot, our colleague, is there. She always finds a slew of great Browns-related stories and people right. to talk to. And she's going to be at the NFL Honors Ceremony where, boy, Miles Garrett and Kevin Stefanski might win and something. Why, so that'll be interesting. Why, that's why it's important for a beat person to go. I didn't elaborate on that. They're oh, yeah. there to dig up news and that. I'm there more for uh, flavor and things. Now, for example, going to the World Series, going to Winter Meet, any of those things for our beat people. Uh, is critical because that's where you build sources and and find out stuff. Um, and this, but in terms of like the general of the game and that, it's it's very secondary. Because I remember I used to when I was a baseball writer a long time ago, I used to go to the World Series because uh, there would be kind of usually like then people were getting hired or fired or junk was going on with other teams. You find out. All right, well, we got a lot to get to today, Terry. Uh, we're going to start with the Browns. I, I want to ask you about your column that's running tomorrow. We're taping this on Tuesday afternoon, mm-hmm. and you, you basically are asking how the Cavs have turned this all around. I think we can get into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we Big contract in Kansas City with the Royals, and we can talk about what that means for the Guardians and um, a couple of letters from fans. we got some good questions today. I do want to mention we're going to let the survey run for one more week, 
if anybody wants to go in, we have a survey about the podcast. If you want to weigh in about what's what we're doing, what you'd like to see us do, it's www.tinyurl.com slash Terry Survey 24. And we've gotten so many great responses and insights. I'm going through them and we'll get into that next week. So, all right, Terry, uh, the Browns news of the week was Monday. You were out in Berea for the Ken Dorsey introductory press conference. And one of the things I love about the way you ask questions is you just get right to the point. You, I think you just asked Dorsey, like, why were you fired in Buffalo? I said, I, that I was said, the way you phrased it, right? No, or I what said, happened, right? What happened in Buffalo? Little calm. <laughs> but now here is why you ask a question that way, as opposed to, in fact, why were you fired? What happened? It's broad enough to see which way he wants to go with it. And then Good it leaves point. room for a follow-up, which, okay, did you – because basically he's, he he bought into the line with the browser that he was sort of scapegoated. They had to change something, and he was it. The offense had a few bad games in a row. They had lost three in a row. They started three and one. They were five and five. And I was looking at um, coordinators in general, how they get fired on my column. You'll see that um, I think the offensive coordinator job is one that leads to more volatility than maybe anything else on your football staff. Because you can think about how defensive coordinators sometimes stick around a long time. Think Spagnuolo has been with Kansas City almost as long as Andy Reid's been there. and But you don't generally see that with an offensive coordinator. And I think I went through, John Harbaugh's had seven in his 16 years or whatever. Uh, Mike Thomas going on his fifth. He also fired one at mid midseason. And I was talking to a, a GM from a, a, a team, an NFL team, and I said, it just seems to me like these guys who are offensive coordinators, one of two things happens. They either do well and they get a head coaching job, or they get fired. And then actually the third thing is usually they get hired somewhere else. And he just busted up laughing. He goes, yeah, you don't really – because he was trying to kind of rack his brain. Like some guys was calling plays for the same team for – five or seven years and wasn't popping up with anybody um, came to mind. Now, head coaches do, but I'm talking about where a guy was the play caller in that. So the fact that where I'm going with this, the fact that Dorsey got fired didn't bother me. Almost all these guys get fired. And like what Alex Van Pelt got fired and then got hired right away by uh, uh, New England. So they bounce around. Yeah, and you you wrote this. I think you wrote this in your column, Terry. But when when things are going bad, especially in the middle of a season, you can't fire the owner. You can't mm-hmm. really fire the head coach in most cases, and you can't fire the roster. So so that leaves coordinators as the easy easy solution, especially in the middle of the season. So and, what, and, and here's another thing, David, along those lines. Also, well, first of all, it buys the coach head coach time. You dump the coordinator. But secondly, sometimes this is why I advocated. Uh, for the Browns a couple of years ago to replace uh, uh, the defensive coordinator, though, Joe Woods. I want to just see how much is Woods. And maybe if somebody else comes in and, and changes a few things around, uh, you say, oh, you know, that there was, a, there was a problem with the scheme, which I thought uh, was the case with Woods. And that wasn't the only problem, but it was part of it. So it allows you to see that without firing your head coach. Uh, but in the end, it's you know fans love to talk about play calling and even if the guy isn't calling plays, uh, well you could say well you need a new dynamic a new set of eyes all this stuff on on the offense and the Browns you know it's 
they keep saying, well, it's not just about Deshaun Watson, it's about the offense, but look, the quarterback's about the offense, and they've got to make it work with Deshaun, and so they're going to try Dorsey. And basically, the answer he gave you too, Terry, was that, you know, at the end of the day, the head coach decided to make a change. And I thought it was interesting. He said it gave me time to go back and look at what we were doing. And he said he thought there was a lot of great things and maybe he'd do some things differently. So I thought that was a good way to handle that. Yeah, because I came back after he he sort of dumped the, well, the head coach decided to make a change. And that's kind of how it goes. I said, well, did you learn anything from that? So I, I, I went a little deeper. And that's what he said. And I mean, I knew, you know, it's one of those where you're not going to get a lot of uh, specific answers, but I was, maybe, maybe, maybe he was really thinking, I learned that, uh, you know, you're very expendable is what you learn uh, in that job. So we'll see what, what happens here. Um, They didn't touch the play calling question. I didn't think they would, Um, but I'll tell you, Dorsey talked at least to me, like um, he's coming in here, believing he's going to have quite a bit of an influence on the offense, whether you call it plays or not. I just wonder what your impression was. Yeah, I, um, it was interesting. I know, I think he said we're on step five out of 75, but yeah. I, 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 I don't think that, I don't think that Kevin Stefanski wants an offensive coordinator who doesn't help shape things. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's very collaborative and we've heard all the players and coaches talk about this. And I think he wants people to feel like they're contributing to the success of the team. And so, you know, the, who, who knows who's going to call plays when we get closer. I did think it was interesting, Terry, though. I think it was Mary Kay's question. She asked, Deshaun says he doesn't like scripted plays. <laughs> and when I listened to Ken Dorsey's answer on that, I mean, I know it, it was this introductory press conference, but when I was done listening to that, I'm like, they're scripting plays. <laughs> like, yeah. Let's be honest here. It, what's his phrase? He said there's negotiables and non-negotiables. Yeah, non-negotiables. Yeah. And, he's, and he, he did the um, old uh, – Oh, we talked to Sean about this, but he said there are reasons you do these things, and um, because it's for the good of the overall offense. And that's, in fact, you and I chatted a bit like this, and I threw it to you, Leslie, and I'd like you to to go back and reiterate again. I said, what do you see the value of the scripted plays, other than okay, the guy, you know, what you're going to run the first ten or twelve plays, but what else about it? Well, also, you learn what you're going to do later. And one of the things I think he got into during the press conference, and this is really one thing I'm looking to see, especially maybe not in preseason because they're going to hide a lot of stuff, but he mentioned pre-snap shifts in motion. Yep. And if you – I don't have the numbers. I should track those down. But I I think the Browns are like middle of the pack in terms of pre-snap motion. And, you know, in in football, for those those who are kind of casual fans, there's people who are like crazy into X's and O's and people who aren't. But basically what you're trying to do as an offense is put the defense in bad positions. And let's say if you can move David and Joker right before the snap and put him in motion – on third and six and get him paired up instead of with a six foot two safety, get him paired against a five ten cornerback who maybe doesn't have great vertical skills. Now you can have David and Joku post up on the sideline like a basketball player. And that pre-snap motion uh, and shifting can get, get you better matchups. And I'm really, I really want to see how they're going to change what they're doing before the ball is snapped. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I think that scripting going back to your original question, Terry, I think the scripting helps you, see like, all right, if we move this running back over here, where's that linebacker going? And how can we exploit that on, on a third and short where we can maybe get 
uh, Nick Chubb out in the flat on a short pass. That's kind of what it's all about to me in terms of the shifting and the motion. And to go to that <clears throat> further, I recall um, Schwartz more than once this season in his press conferences where they face, I think, San Francisco. And it might have been Baltimore. I know San Francisco was one because they do a lot of shifting and moving. He said, we have to be careful not to fall for the eye candy. In other words, on defense, that you're not just chasing somebody, you know, right. That guy's t- going off the field and trying to take the best safety or whatever with him. And so that's a, a, another thing that you're looking at with the pre-snap stuff. I have to admit, I'm like, Sean Watson, listen, man, you know, you haven't played well enough here to decide you want to kind of turn away, turn the traditional way of doing an offense upside down. That's my thought. Well, that's going to be their job is to get him and the offense humming. And again, if you can put their job is to put players in the best position yeah. to succeed, including especially Deshaun Watson and all the stuff that's going around Deshaun Watson when the, the, the play clock is ticking down can help him succeed. But, you know, Terry, if you want to see two teams that are great at pre-snap motion and and, uh, and shifts, the Super Bowl, man, just those, yeah. those teams are as good as anybody, especially the 49ers. Yeah. They are masters of moving people around and getting mismatches, both in the run game and the pass game. I think you're going to see the, the Browns will probably be incorporating a lot of what you're going to see on Sunday into what they're going to do. And that was a nice thing about when the Browns defense faced San Francisco, because uh, I do remember the eye candy, eye candy comment then. They didn't fall for much of it. Um, it was kind of a iffy day to play. It wasn't awful, but it wasn't great. And they were able to uh, uh, win that game with P.J. Walker and the defense, and they got a break when uh, Moody missed a field goal at the end, and the Browns guy and Hopkins made it. But that not falling for the eye candy allowed them to keep it close and set up for a chance to win. And I'm just excited to see what the Browns will try to do with Watson because – I don't know what offense works. I mean, you know he likes to be in a shotgun a lot, and you know he likes to scramble. But in my column, the other point I made is this. I think it's a tougher job than Dorsey believes. And people don't have the full weight of the fact that the last time he played a full season was 2020. Zero games in 21, six in 22, six in 23. That's 12 games in three years and the assumption has been that he will go back to being the guy he was in 20 we no longer know that and when especially when you put shoulder surgery on top now if you're the browns and you're looking i got three more years on the contract with the guy with a no trade i don't like how the offense looks i know some of it's Deshaun's fault but i don't know how much is i'm going to change that offense to try to make it easier and better for him because I have to. And they, they've got smart people on this. What you see in week one is not what you're going to see no. in week seven or in week 14. The offenses evolve, and they're going to try and figure it out right away, obviously. But if they don't, they're going to keep trying stuff. And we'll see. I'm, I'm really interested to see what this offense is going to look like and what's going to be different. So that'll be a, a, a huge storyline this, this coming season. The GM uh, I was talking to, by the way, uh, we were talking about offensive coordinators being fired or moving up. We got on Joe Flacco. And he thought he thought that market for Flacco is going to be limited. Just kind of maybe some backups in that, that he didn't, even though 
the numbers are eye-popping. He said, you know, modern football, turn, turnovers are like kind of the the scarlet letter on you. They do not like guys who turn the ball over. Of course, Dorsey dealt with that with Josh Allen. And I mean, and so we'll see on that. I was actually glad to hear that because I was assuming they'd have no shot at Flacco. He thinks they will. So, so we'll if see. He, if he's if he's going to be in the mix for a starting QB derby somewhere, he would take that. If he's not going to be in it, if he's going to be a backup, I think the Browns would have to be at the front of that line. Right? Yeah, because he's he already what, here. He knows yeah. what he's getting into, and he's it's a good situation, and he seems like he really likes it. That's where this guy went with it. Yeah. And, and he said that also the coaching staff has a great comfort with him. Uh, you know, you're going to have to deal with Deshaun has a bad game, and we want Flacco to pay all that stuff. But he, the hanging over the Browns is 12 games in three years. How do you, why would you last year the big mistake they made is they assumed Deshaun was going to be durable because he had been in the past, and so that is why they didn't even keep Dobbs. They just went with DTR, who they liked, and picked P.J. Walker up off of kind of a football rummage sale and thought, well, you know, P.J. has played in the league. If need be, we could put him in there. And so were they never even in the beginning? I mean, I'm not just talking about Josh Dobbs. You know, they went against their old uh, way of doing business, Andrew Berry, which was $6 million a year over – Twelve million, basically, for two years for uh, Case Keenum, and then five million for Brissett. Uh, that's the kind of guy they got to get in here. By the way, if it's not Flacco, I want Jacoby. Uh, I really do want Jacoby, and I because a football thing, version of a professional hitter, right? Yeah, I mean, you know what you're getting with these guys, and they know, and they've been down, they've been down the road with Deshaun and things. So uh, that was a good, but I, I guess maybe. I mean, it only takes one team to decide Joe Flacco could come in and save us. And so that would change all that. But I do understand he, he went into too great depth of, you know, analytics. I mean, they have all these negative things, you know, um, attached to uh, uh, turnovers. On top of that, you know, they, they, they also, you know, turnover-worthy plays. You know, Joe has some of those that, you know, balls that should have been picked off that weren't. And that would scare some people. But, man, oh, man, I'm like, bring him back. Let him go to Dunkin' Donuts on the west side. Let's just do it again, you know. <laughs> and I, it's remember where Amari Cooper called him a faith multiplier. Having him there, when I have my starting quarterback coming off major shoulder surgery, I don't care what they call it, how far along, it's major shoulder surgery because any surgery that knocks you out for a couple of months and you're a quarterback is major. All right. Hey, I wanted to talk about turnovers for a minute because a lot of what Ken Dorsey and you, you were just mentioning some of this, Terry, but I don't know that you can necessarily pin more than 20 percent of turnovers on an offensive coordinator. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And here's why. Like, here's the 20 percent. If your if your offense is not winning on first down and second down and you're you're facing a lot of third and tens and third and thirteens. You're going to have to throw the ball, and you're going to throw a lot more interceptions because you got to get the ball down the field to get first downs. Like that's on the offensive coordinator. But I, I saw an interesting interview with Tom Brady, and he was talking about like the teams that win 
do things that don't lose games. And they know what these things are. And one of the examples he used was when when he was playing, they, their teams always had a rule that we don't hold the ball out over the goal line to score a touchdown ever. Amen to that. And he said it might it might work 99 times out of 100, Tom Brady said, but on the 100th time when you're in the AFC Championship and you go to do it and you lose the ball, all the benefit of those other 99 times goes out the window. And, of course, Browns fans are thinking about what play, Terry, the Rashard Higgins mm-hmm. uh, play against the Chiefs when he was going into the end zone and reached the ball out and – the ball went into the end zone and the Browns lost the ball. And now they're thinking about changing that rule, I guess, not because of that play. But but I, I thought that was really interesting that you can tell Richard Higgins all season, we do not reach the ball over the goal line. But in a game, in the heat of battle, guys want to score that touchdown, especially when, when crunch time happens. You can't blame the offensive coordinator for plays like that. Like if no. a player, when P.J. Walker throws the ball off of a helmet, and then after the game says, oh, there's some things you can't control, like you can't blame the offensive coordinator for that. Or how so about when P.J. Walker is rolling out and he's supposed to just run the ball and he throws it into the end zone? Remember yeah, that? Yeah, right. Yeah, Fortunately, exactly. it was incomplete, but it was dropped. The 49ers should have caught it. And remember, after the game, even Kevin, who rarely said that, said, well, really, that was a designed run. <laughs> so, like – complain in the fall if the Browns offense is not yeah. running efficient, efficiently and not winning on first and second down and not making the right plays. But like the, the turnovers happen because players make mistakes and we all do. But uh, I just think laying them, laying the turnovers in Buffalo at the feet of Ken Dorsey, I think was a little bit of an unfair proposition. Look, they, so were, losing, that. they were losing. They wanted to do something. Remember McDermott is a defensive guy. So they weren't going to fire the defensive coordinator. Um, so he turned to the offense, which was struggling to an extent, and then um, they just decided to, to – and they had a guy sitting there in Brady who'd been an offensive coordinator at LSU, and I believe he had called plays in the NFL. I'm not positive on the second part. But yes, they had, he has. They, you know, they had their version of like a Todd Munkin or somebody like that right there. So this was a guy that was it was an easy turn to, to turn to. Like I talked later to somebody with the Browns, I said, why didn't you fire Joe Woods in the middle of that third year? And they just they, basically the person said there was nobody on the staff that we thought could do it, which also led to change, changes on the staff that they just felt if it's that bad, you got nobody there. I mean, the Browns, along with Dorsey, they hired the guy who was the offensive coordinator from Alabama, Tommy, Tommy Reese, is it? And, you know, he's he can do it. In other words, they have three guys there who've experienced calling plays at a high level. And so they really think that they're solid in that department. And I'm sh- I'm not sure um, who uh, uh, they have on defense that Schwartz has, but there's probably somebody there that Schwartz has designated that he really trusts and could do it. I don't know the deep. He, Schwartz cast such a huge, I mean, he's like the sun in Arizona. It blots out everything else around him. The, the, the light is so bright and it's so stark, you know, no, no other clouds even appear. And so that's, a, by the way, I remember all the Jim Schwartz is going to go somewhere else. He didn't get an interview. And I mean, it wasn't just because that last game, Schwartz's reputation, he's an older defensive coordinator. They are not in vogue for head coaching positions. Yeah, especially the defense part of that equation. So, yep. 
Um, hey, Terry, I, I want to keep us moving here, but I wanted to mention that so the Browns losing Bill Callahan, uh, mm-hmm. who's going to go coach with his son in Tennessee. This might be the biggest loss of the offseason for the Browns, but what did you think of that? And I, I, I think you're getting some questions from fans about why didn't the Browns get compensation for that? Yes. Because Bill Callahan was under contract, so for next season. I mean, the big, yes, which they could have demanded compensation or something. Here is the, the deal that, uh, and now Andrew Barry believes this very strongly that the NFL is a people business. And, you know, Callahan has an agent and represents a lot of other coaches. And are you really going to stand in the way of this guy, who was one of the very first coaches to join up with Kevin Stefanski when it wasn't easy to come here, to deny a chance in, you know, his later years to coach with his son because you want a fifth-round pick or something? No, we're not going to do that because that gives you a bad vibe around the league. Because really, coaches in Cleveland still, in the eyes of a lot of coaches or whatever, they're still guilty until proven innocent. Because so many people have been fired here after a year or two. I mean, there are times where they approach coaches, I know, you know, for assistant things, and the coach would go home, and and the wife is already tired of moving all over the place, and they've been looking at every – you know why You know why here we're not familiar with coordinators getting fired and uh, the head coach staying? Because usually everybody gets fired after <laughs> a year right. or two. Yeah. They're all gone. You know, it's the football nuclear option. Boom, GM, coach, everybody's out of there. So that is a reason, too. You also don't want to go, man, they were the team. Weren't they the team that, like, they wouldn't let Bill Callahan coach with his son? I mean, what you know, what is that? I mean, granted, it's a loss, but it's still a people business. And one of the things that Andrew Barry was able to do the last few years, if you notice how he's been able to get a lot of guys on the roster to sign extensions, is he rebuilt relationships with agents. That was one of his first jobs when he came in, was to do that. And it's paid off well, you know, whether you want to talk about Miles Garrett. And uh, that's why I was I wrote a thing about Amari Cooper. He's not going anywhere. I'll tell you right now, he's either going to be under this contract or they'll rework it. But Andrew Berry is not going to take the guy that he found for a fifth-round pick who racked up 1,100 and 1,200 yards back-to-back and let this guy walk on a salary cap issue, there is no way. And on top of it, that other GM I mentioned I was talking to said, it, we've got on the Cooper situation, because if he's on the open market, you know, that's $20 million is, is is a nice price for him. He's worth a lot more. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Um, all right, Terry, we got to keep moving. I did want to mention, because uh, when we uh, heard Stephen Vogt uh, talking for the first time to the media, he said he had never been through an interview process like he went through with the Guardians, and we heard <laughs> the same thing from Ken Dorsey, which I thought was really interesting. He said it was like a root canal to get this job, and he'd met more people than in any other building or any other interview process that he'd been through. And I, I just, if you're a Cleveland fan, like – Given what we've seen over the last 40 years or whatever of just dysfunctional ownership and management, like it's good to see people saying like these guys really put us through the ringer and made sure we were legit before we got hired. I think that's really got to be reassuring for Cleveland fans, right? And if you know this, Chris Antonetti and Andrew Berry and Kobe Altman, you know, they're they're part of that consortium for better race relations and all that. They've become friends during this period. And I think they're kind of – Younger guys um, look at the sport differently, 
you know, this is where you get collaboration, partnership, all this stuff. It, it, it all comes out of that. But they, I think they really do believe it. So I'm not surprised that they were both – I bet they even talk about how they interview with each other because they're yeah. not competing. They're just – you know, they're like, they're like guys in the same business but not in the same sport. Yeah, that's a good point, Terry. Um, all right, we, we have a letter here from Steve Prescott. I'm going to save it for next week because we're running behind. Steve is asking about next season and whether he should have hope, and I, I think we will uh, get into that next week and we well, have that, time. that one's going to hang around for a while. So yeah, yeah, we can do that after the Super Bowl. And I did want to mention, Terry, how much you think players make for winning the Super Bowl and how much do you think they make for losing it on Sunday? Quick trivia question. Man, I have no clue. I didn't either. Grand? I have no idea. Yeah, that was a good guess. I, um, there's a guy named Robert Rayola. He's on t- Twitter as uh, at Sports Taxman, and he tweets out a lot of interesting stuff about finances and stuff. But the winners are going to make 164,000, and the losers make 89,000. So there you go. I, I would have thought, thought it would have been more. Tidbit. I did too. Geez, they almost gave him that much for the Pro Bowl the other day. Yeah, no, really. I, yeah, that thought it have been more. I'm very yeah. surprised on that. I mean, remember, I wrote a book on, on the uh, 64. Uh, excuse me, 1961 uh, Yankees called uh, 61. I wrote it with Tony Kubek and Kubek talked about when he came up and, you know, the big thing when the Yankees negotiated with you say, we're all, we're not going to pay that much, but you know, you're going to get world series money. And he said some years that that was like a 50% raise. Oh, I believe fact, it. If you weren't playing well, the veterans would come up. You are messing with my money. You better make sure we get there. And and he said that those World Series games were intense because, you know, the difference between maybe getting 5,000 and 2,500 because it was stuff like that. But it was a matter like a, a difference between a 20 and 40 percent raise. Oh, yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Um, all right. Well, Terry, who are you picking for the game Sunday real quick before we move on? I'm going to pick San Francisco just because I'm tired of Kansas City. All right. Well, I'm picking the Chiefs. I, uh, you love, you love Taylor Swift. No, well, you know, she's great. But beyond that, I remember, <laughs> I remember when the Jordan Bulls were going, my wife was yeah. in Las Vegas in 1998, the year they played the jazz. I'm trying to remember what year that was. And I'm like, the jazz were rolling everybody. I'm like, yeah, put, put a hundred dollars on the jazz for me. Cause I think, and I'm like, never bet against Michael Jordan. I learned that then you never bet against Michael Jordan. No. I think it's the same thing with Patrick Mahomes. I just think the chiefs are going to find a way. Um, so anyway, enjoy the game, everybody, Sunday, and we'll be right back. We're going to take this break. When we get back, I want to ask Terry about his column that's going up tomorrow, and the headline is exactly how did the Cavs turn themselves around? Is it sustainable? So we'll get into that and more when we come back from this break on Terry's Talking. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back on Terry's talking. Hey, Terry, before we get into the Cavs, I do want to mention our new podcast that our entertainment and culture team does. It's called Dine Drink CLE. Cleveland is such a great food town. And check this new podcast out. It's about dining and drinking in greater Cleveland. Host Josh, 
Josh Duke, Alex Darris. It's a fun podcast with the latest foodie happenings, and they're joined by experts in town from our newsroom, Mark Bona, Paris Wolf, Pizza Carry, and they know food and dining better than anybody in Cleveland. So give it a, give it a listen. It's Dine, Drink, CLE, and you can find it anywhere where you find your podcast. So, all right, Terry, I wanted to leave 15 minutes here to get into all the emails you've received about people and fans wanting to fire J.B. Bickerstaff. You got those lined <laughs> up for us? No, but I, I, I will give – there's a guy named Stanley wrote me, and I will give him credit. He came back with, I guess I was wrong about JB. Yeah, uh, all right. So that was, now of course. I'm guessing could, you haven't gotten any of those lately, correct? No, no that was the last, no, I have not. Um, and I think that, because I kept stressing the big picture on JB, you know, the 22 to 44 to 51 wins, you know, coming out of LeBron and, that's a very hard place to go. And then also the lack of drama on the team, which is so important in the NBA. And now you've seen how he was able to steady the ship here. Because you remember, they're 13 and 12. At that point, it looked like uh, Mobley and Garland, in a minimum of four weeks, maybe out eight weeks, uh, the national pundits, now trade Donovan Mitchell right now. You can get more for him right now. You know, the season's shot, let's all eat dirt and die. I mean, it was a, that's sort of how it went. You know, that that was it. You know, go back, get draft choices. And that's because the narrative of Jared Allen missed the first five games. They got these new guys they're putting into place, and they're trying to change the system around. And they were just, they just seemed to couldn't really keep any get any flow going and it was going to take time it's like teams want i'm sorry excuse me fans and and um, media people want the team to have chemistry but they want chemistry to be instant like dropping an alka-seltzer into a bowl into a thing it just fizzes up right away and that takes care of all the pain in your tummy well basketball is not like that you know you if you want chemistry especially if you want guys to go against the grain and move without the ball. Watch any pickup game. Watch half the high school games, college games. Watch most of the pro games. Give me the ball and get out of the way. You don't see much motion away from the ball. So you're asking players to do things that they're not comfortable with and to do it on the pro level. But I really think a turning point was when Garland and Mulvey went out. We've talked about this about putting the ball in, in uh, Donovan's hands, but also the other players realize he, Donovan's the son. We're the planets going around him. Keep moving. The ball's coming to you. It's coming to me. Donovan wants to do this, and you know he's a faith multiplier too, like Flacco. And so they began to see that. And of course, players such as um, Struess and Merrill. Even to a lesser extent, uh, Levert. Levert still likes to go a lot of one-on-one, but that's okay. He's pretty good at it. Uh, Okoro discovered if he gets out and runs on the break and gets the ball, goes to the rim, he gets four or six easy points a game. They found themselves during that time. Now, it's a small sample size since Garland and the, excuse me, Garland and Mobley came back. But what I've noticed, first of all, is you now have you have 48 minutes. So even if you're playing Donovan, 33 minutes instead of 35 or 32, 
that gives you, say, 16 minutes a game where he's not out there. So right there, that slot is for Garland. And then if you're playing, let's say, 32 minutes for Allen, there's your 16 minutes right away for Mobley. In other words, we're there the focal point, the focal big man, focal point guard. And then the rest of the time, so you're only talking about another 15 or 16 minutes where they kind of have to make it flow together. And this can be done. It's really well. Let me run through some of the numbers real quick, Terry, just to give it some background. So the Cavs are 32 and 16, and they've gone from what sixth place up to they're they're tied second. with the Bucks for second place. They, they have the second best record, but they're in a virtual tie with the Bucks for the number two seed in the East. Five games behind the Celtics, they're 19 and four in their last 23 games, which is really something. But beyond that, like I, I want to read a letter here, Terry, from one of our listeners, DGL from Wilmington, North Carolina. And this will kind of tie into the next thing we might get into. But he says, uh, not since the miracle of Richfield have I enjoyed watching the Cavs this much. Total team playing the right way, probably premature. But how do you think of their chances against the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals if they get there? But before I let you answer, Terry, you were bringing all this up. But you listen to J.B. Bickerstaff speak after games, and he's not talking about like – execution and, no. and and he's talking these guys are playing for each other in a selfless way and it's like a, it was it's kind of like listening to a, a business meeting or where a, there's a really efficient business that's just humming but this is a, like a basketball team and he talks over and over up the guys know that if they give the ball away and play for another guy the other guy will do the same for him and you don't see that with a lot of NBA teams, everybody wants to get theirs. You know, you always watch Shaq on the TNT show and he's like, Oh, that guy's got to get his 27 and 12. And, but this, it seems like these guys don't care a lot of, a lot in a lot of ways. That's Is that how you see it. Well, when they, especially when they went out and started winning that way. And I think when Donovan, I mean, Donovan still takes a number of shots, but it's like, it might be maybe two or three shots a game. He takes, so you go, and I don't know about that, but most of the time, Sometimes he's even passing up chances where he could drive to the rim just to, to deliver a ball to somebody in the corner. So he's he's modeling that. Um, there's a coaching saying, you get what you stress. Um, I'm not always sure that's true because you can stress the right things, but the guys won't. Um, the guys won't well, maybe won't listen anyway. But I can tell you this, if you don't stress it, you have no chance of getting it. So when JB first took over, what did he stress? Defense, playing together on defense, helping each other on defense. Now that's pretty ingrained. So then the next step is all this movement on offense, ball movement, player movement, and playing for each other there as opposed to a lot of isolation or simply everybody just stand on the perimeter and wait for a pass to come to them. And so he's he's speaking really to the almost the heart of the players. And he's messaging them through the media all the time, praising them for what they do. He is the master of taking an obvious point and going in depth on it so he could deliver the message that he wants. And he also, he's educating his fans to, this is what, watch, this is how we're playing. This is what we want you, this is what we want Appreciate you to see. Appreciate this. Yeah. Yes. And also, and understand, this is why we're doing what we're doing. And I learned that in terms of how you talk about the game and use the media to not only uh, speak to your players, but to the fans. Earl Weaver was the master of that because he was the one with all the early stats, early analytics. And he would talk to, when I covered the Orioles in 79 in the Baltimore, he would tell us, you know, and he goes, now look, you know, people need to know I can't play, you know, uh, 
this guy against Nolan Ryan. He's three for 300. You know, he, then he would go back. All right, actually, he's three for 21 with 12 strikeouts. But I've got Terry Crowley here, who is six for 12 against Nolan Ryan. Now, who would you play? <laughs> and he go bleep and write it. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and and because they, but see, he was sending a message, and and just like he would, he did not like to bunt. You know, I don't like to give away outs, and this kind. He had all these things. Well, I see JB doing it on a modern version of that, and I just think that's why a lot of people put JB into the box, like when he was the interim coach in Houston and the interim coach and coach for a year in Memphis, and those were tough situations. And also the assumption being that coaches will not learn. In other words, who they are early on is who they are, and that's just false. And every coach is a journey, and every season is a journey. So, yep. so get, get real quick, Terry. I, I think getting back to DGL's question, I think the Celtics, the Cavs match up pretty well with them. We have a long way to go. We're not even to the All Star game mm-hmm. here yet, but I, I don't think the Cavs would have any fear of playing Boston in some kind of a playoff series, whatever round it's in. I, th- I think it's more of a finesse team, and. I, you know, you, the Cavs have defensive options to put on the Celtics' two best players. I think that would be really interesting, and it would be it would be a tough matchup. I think they could exploit them too with with Allen and and Mobley together. If Mobley could just, it's not just three pointers, but like Mobley made a jumper from the foul line the other day, and that just have some little bit of an outside game. But what I've liked about Mobley now is somebody got into his head is like when you get the ball near the rim, go up there like a man. You know, go and if you miss, you miss. But go hard for the not just dunk it. Go up there hard, and then the guys will throw you the ball more. All right. So we were talking a lot about Donovan Mitchell the last few weeks, Terry. And do you think it's time that he needs to be in the MVP discussion? And and if so, will that happen soon? Or or are Cavs fans silly to wait for that? I think they're silly to wait for that, just because even if even if he deserves it, he's just not going to probably get it. Um, it's just it's a Cleveland thing, um, and hanging over them is the fact that last year Donovan didn't play well in the playoffs. They didn't play well in the playoffs. Maybe I'm just cynical, but I've just seen this whole you know story before. It's just like, I mean, I follow basketball. I don't stay up all night watching it. I had no clue Donovan Mitchell was this good. I just didn't know. I remember talking to Mike Fratello was one and two general managers that I knew. And they said, Terry, you just don't watch the Western Conference. This guy could get to the rim anytime he wants. He goes, I'm not saying he's the best in the game, but he's a top 10 player. He goes, they they went, they took a big swing, but they, they took a big swing on a big time guy. And they were right. But I didn't, you know, he was in Utah and they won a lot of games in Utah. But they didn't do that well in the playoffs, and I didn't know it. Well, and he's basically playing for Utah East. I mean, the Cavs yeah, they, are never are. on national TV. They're they never are. on national TV, and nobody knows what he's doing. I think the only way – it reminds me a little bit of the Miles Garrett player of the year, yeah. defensive player of the year thing, Terry, where the Browns' defense got to be so good for so long that everybody recognized them as the number one defense. And then like, oh, yeah, well, Miles is the best player. And Kevin Stefanski started stumping for him, and pretty soon Miles was in the discussion. Like, I think if the Cavs find a way to, to pass the Celtics mm-hmm. and move into first place in the East, we might see it. But I, I pulled up the, the odds for MVP today, and Joker's number one at minus 155. 
SGA is next. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Donovan Mitchell is number 10 on the odds list right now behind Luca, Jalen Brunson. You can just go down the list, but he's not even in the top five or top eight right yeah. now. He's got a long way to go, but it might be a Miles Garrett effect. Maybe if we see the Cavs take that top spot, then the, the nation will start taking notice. They're, they're just not on national TV enough the way it I is also, right now. I also think it doesn't happen until next year. In other words, kind of Cavs, a delay effect. Yeah, mm. that's what I really believe. Uh, the NFL is different. It's so much exposure in the NFL for everybody. You know, it just is. Uh, fine, you know, I like the fact. I don't care the national media or whatever doesn't like the Cavs or whatever. I like the Cavs. They're they're overachieving. They're playing the right way. They're got they're, they're young. The whole starting lineup's twenty seven or younger. I mean, I like the whole thing. The coach has got a clue. Kobe's a good GM. It's not just about this year. And if, if if the whole thing falls apart, you know, in terms of the playoffs and they end up having to trade Mitchell, it's not like the, you know, there's nobody else here that can play. I'm just, I mean, I'm creating a worst case scenario, but in my mind, it it doesn't really just destroy the franchise. It's not like when LeBron would leave and then everything would topple. It, it's not in that situation. But in the meantime. You may be able to convince Mitchell to stay. And Terry, the, the Browns talk about having a, a window, a three-year window left sure. here, or longer, a ten-year window, I guess is what they said. But the Cavs have a, at least a two-year window, not beyond, sure. beyond this season. Garland signed for next year. Mitchell signed for next year. Allen, Lavert, Struess, Mobley, Niang. Okoro uh, is a restricted free agent. They could bring him back if they wanted to. So it's two years and beyond. Um, so we'll see how that goes. So we do need to mention, Terry, the trade deadline's Thursday. I think that's a pretty short answer. They won't do anything, right, as far as Not, – nothing. And they, should they do anything? Nothing matters. And if they did, I would be very unhappy. You know, traded a, a t- any of their 10 guys in a rotation. Let's with some – this unbelievable deal. But who you don't want to touch it. You work so hard to get your chemistry. And you showed that chemistry worked even losing with a couple of key players. You don't want to touch it. Don't mess with a good thing. Yeah. So. All right. Well, the Cavs are going on a three-game road trip after their homestand here. They're playing the Wizards on Wednesday, which is tomorrow. Thursday at Brooklyn on a road back-to-back. And then Saturday at Toronto are their next three games. So follow Chris Fedor's coverage and Ethan Sands uh, doing the podcast at cleveland.com slash Cavs. They are definitely hot. So, All right, Terry, big news in baseball this week. The Royals, and a name that Guardians fans know, John Sherman, who is the Royals' owner, uh, Bobby Witt Jr., their star shortstop prospect, has signed an 11-year deal worth $288.7 million guaranteed. That's even more than Deshaun Watson. How do you come up with (laughs) $289.7 million? I mean, if you're doing an 11-year contract, why don't you just round it up or something? Yeah, and it includes a three-year, $89 million team option that would drive it to more than $377 million if the team picks that up, and he could be playing for the Royals through 2037. That's crazy to think about. So, so Terry, if you're the Guardians and you see this deal, I, what does it come out to, $26 million a year? Uh, are you thinking anything about this, or does it matter? This is a team in your division, kind of a similar market size and – what well, do you think I, the Guardians w- are feeling about this? I wish they had a Bobby Witt type that you could, could think about doing this with. That's number one. You don't. I mean, Bobby Witt, uh, at the age of 23, at 276, 30 homers, 
96 RBIs, 49 stolen bases, and he's a shortstop. That's, you know, this is like incredible. People just don't know it because he's in Kansas City and they're bad. But that's that's the deal there. There's also some outs in this contract. As always, these things get very complex. Uh, I mean, really, who would you, you, you know, the this contract doesn't apply to guys you'll be really thinking about a long-term deal with, whether it's Josh Naylor, because you certainly don't need to go out that long with him, and he's got an injury history, or your young pitchers, Gavin Newsom. I mean, yeah, Gavin Newsom, I think, is a governor. <laughs> Gavin Newsom or Gavin Williams should not get an 11-year contract. So there you go. <laughs> um, and, and no, it's not a political comment, just a common sense one. And so, uh, and the same thing, Tanner Bybee is another guy that would like to sign long term. Um, I wish, you know, baseball is never pushed for this. And I was talking to uh, a president of a team a few years ago, a major league team. And I said, why don't you guys do what they do in the NBA? And he goes, salary cap, we'd love this. No, no, it's not just a salary cap. They have a maximum contract. It's either four or five years, and it's a mathematical formula. I said, it isn't the stupid 12-year things you guys do and everything else. So therefore, it's expensive, but it's like sort of a controlled expense. You know what it is. And then if you trade the guy, they kind of know what it is, and you're locked into that. I said, that would really help you. And he said, as far as he knew, that they had not pushed hard in the labor negotiations for that. So now you're seeing more and more of these 12-year, 13-year, 11-year contracts. It's like, it's stupid. And you know how it is in baseball, Terry. Any The players want it free, free reign to everything. And, I, I, man, I can't ever see that happening. I just can't. Yeah, but. well, that would have been one of the things that along when they had some of their tougher negotiations, they might have been able to get in lieu of no salary cap or something like that. Can you give us this? Because, you know, if you really look at their, I don't want to get all caught up in the economics, but that weird thing where you are you play four years and then you have a couple years of arbitration, all that, that's a crazy system too because you come up to the big leagues and the first couple of years you're just playing for the major league minimum no matter what. Uh, so it that the arbitration system screwed up too. But I, I just really, you would give your smaller market teams a better shot if they knew, you know, a maximum contract was five years at 60 million a year or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. It's a huge bargaining chip and I don't know what the players would get in return for that. But anyway, we're not lawyers. We'd have to, we'd have to give just for some perspective, Terry, um, Jose Ramirez's contract for 2024, 17 million. And then he goes to 19, 21, 23 and 25. Mm-hmm. For the fifth year of that deal in 2020, and then uh, Andres Jimenez, just for comparison, he's at 5.5 this year. Then it goes to 10, 15.5, 23.5, and 23.5 for just for some context for the yeah. whipped contract. So, um, all right, Terry, um, I do want to mention your book. Everybody can catch the guy with the sign and other thoughts on faith in everyday life. Don't forget to visit TerryPlutoBook.com, and we do have a couple of fan letters. I had Jerry's letter last week, and I forgot to bring his name along with his letter, so I did want to get Jerry Rogozin's name and letter in here. We asked fans for our 100th episode to write where they live and why they're Cleveland sports fans. 
And we'll got we'll get to this one right now. So uh, he says, "Hey guys, I like a previous contributor. I live in Charleston, South Carolina. I grew up in Girard, Ohio. As the youngest of three boys, I can remember probably 1963 to 65 on Sundays when the Browns were televised. The NFL intro would include highlights of the greats, and would include and possibly conclude with highlights of Jim Brown. My older brothers would chant Jim Brown." And as a four-year-old, I was hooked. A year or so later, I can remember retiring after dinner to our dining room where our father and I would lay on the carpet and listen to Tribe Games on one of those big old wooden combo record player Mm -hmm. radio consoles. Did you have one of those, Terry? No. I've seen them, but we never had one. No, we didn't have that. I just remember these big old radios. But Yeah, yeah. Uh, But he says he would always alert that the rock was at the plate and he delivered some exciting homers. Again, hooked for life. I had a Nerf basketball hoop in my bedroom when I was about 11 and fell in love with the Cavs along with Joe Tate's broadcast, even though we lost a lot. Bingo. Hooked again. Lastly, many years later, I had the privilege of attending Game 6, the year the Cavs crushed Golden State to force Game 7. I spent the entire night trying to find Game 7 on the Internet from a hotel in Vienna, Austria, and finally connected to the broadcast just as I believe J.R. Smith nailed two three-pointers early in the third <laughs> quarter to help shift the momentum. The block, the stop, the shot, I listened to the post game, and I walked out into the streets of Vienna from a great hotel with a 24-hour lounge, beer in hand, cigar in mouth, calves shirt on, arms raised to the sky in a final championship celebration around 6 a.m. in Austria. A young man walked by me on the street, looked at me, smiled, and said, LeBron. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of made the journey all worthwhile. (laughs) That's some story, Jerry. Thanks for that one. Um, and then we have a last one here. My name is Jared Lange, L-A-N-G-E, Lang, Lange. I hope I got your name right, Jared. He says, I've been listening to the podcast since day one. Thank you for that. I was so happy to see it because I was a big fan of Terry's talking videos that Terry would do for Cleveland.com. I was born and raised in Northeast Indiana, but my father was born in Akron and was from Cuyahoga Falls. His parents, my grandparents, were natives of Cuyahoga Falls. In fact, my grandpa my grandpa's grandfather immigrated from Italy and started falls stamping and welding. That original factory building is on the National Register of Historic Places. My grandpa, uncle, and my father all raised me as an Indians and Browns fans. Um, A side note about when my grandpa moved the family to Wabash, the home he bought was purchased from the owner of Deal Machinery, whose daughter married Otto Graham. Well, there's a tie for you, huh? Yeah. My grandpa was a gigantic fan of Otto Graham and would love to remind me of this fact. Grandpa Lang also attended the games played in Cleveland for the 48 World Series before he passed shortly after turning 92 in July of 22. I'd often remark he may be the last person alive to see the last World Series won by Cleveland. My grandpa Lang passed this September, so now with my father having passed in 2009, my uncle passed in 2020, it's up to me and my cousins to hopefully see a championship by the Browns or Guardians. I've always remained a Cleveland fan because, one, it's how I was raised, and, two, because of how familial and emotional connections I have to the area. I'd like to add that the Guardians are my favorite. From the first spring training game to game 162, I am listening. I have no doubt if the Guardians ever win a World Series, I will weep like a baby. Thank you for talking so much baseball. I love all of your insights into all the teams, but the baseball I appreciate the most. I hope that sufficiently explains why I am, for better or worse, and I will always be a Cleveland fan. Thanks for that, Jared. We appreciate that. And Jared lives in Wabash, Indiana. So, well, it all we have a saying in the newsroom, like it always comes back to Cleveland. There's always a Cleveland tie, and there's mm-hmm. one where there was a wedding 
<laughs> that involved Otto Graham, his daughter married yeah. the, do- the owner of Deal Machinery. So huh. I-, I remember going to Otto Graham's house. This is after he retired. He was in Sarasota, and I was that. This is back when my dad had a stroke, and it was a long story there. But basically, I was helping to take care of him, and um, and I was looking for some things to write while I was down there, and and. I'm, Somebody told me, you know, out of grants, I found him and just went over there and had a delightful afternoon with him. Um, just a, just such a gentleman. And what year know, was this? This was um, middle nineties. Nice. Cause that's when my, my dad had a stroke in 93 and died in 98. So somewhere in there. Um, and you know, a trivia question is, but there was a different world back then, but Paul Brown never won a playoff game without Otto Graham. Now that's it's like a Belichick Brady thing, huh? Yeah, but they didn't have all the wild cards and everything else. You know, you kind of yeah. won your won your conference and you played for the title. So, but that's uh, Otto. Otto was lost in football history on how great he was. Definitely, definitely, because of the, it wasn't the Super Bowl era, and yeah. he never got to be part of that. So. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. I do want to mention Terry's newsletter, which comes out every Monday. It gives you an email with all the stuff he's written during the week, including his Faith in You column, which is very popular. You can go to cleveland.com slash newsletters, and you click a box. It takes a minute to sign up. Terry, anything else you want to get into? We made our Super Bowl predictions already. I think we're done, huh? I think that's it. All right. Thank you, everybody. Check out the survey, and I appreciate everybody bearing with me. I'm getting over this uh, whatever bug I had. My voice should be back to normal by next week, so I thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week, and we'll be talking Super Bowl and more on Terry's Talking.